Amen. Thank you, choir. It's one of my favorite hymns ever. A great reminder that the fountain from which every blessing comes is Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to need to add chairs, Richard, if we keep getting, what's, people are joining the choir. Becca Arnold, new choir member up there. It's good to see you guys this morning, full choir. It's great. We need more chairs? We can, we can add them. We got them. Special day to be in the house of the Lord today. It's always special when we get to observe baptism, but um, again, getting to see Chloe and, and May and what they've been through is just really a, a neat opportunity. Big thanks to Phil Region and Carolyn Steinhouse who help us out up there every time we do a, a baptism. Phil's one of our deacons. And if you are hesitant about filling out the ministry nomination card, please don't be uh, hesitant to put your own name on there. Self-nominations are not vain. That is also known as volunteering, which is great, okay? So please turn in your own name. It's not a, a, I'd rather you nominate yourself than someone who doesn't want to do it. Does that make sense? Okay, please volunteer for a ministry position if you can. Before we get into our text for today, I, I do want to remind you the Awaken movement is coming to Nashville. What this is, is 300 churches that are joining together to basically pray for revival, to pray for the Holy Spirit to move in our city in a powerful way. And I, I don't ever want to get so jaded that I quit praying for revival, right? We want to see God do something in our city that we can't explain through any human efforts, right? It's only a movement of His Spirit poured out on this city. So if you have not received a prayer packet yet, we only have about 15 left. And I got some helpers, I think, Ryan and some others. If you would just stand, if you're going to help pass these packets out, if you are willing to pray for 15 people in this city, what there are, there's about 10,000 of these packets that have gone out to 300 churches. And we're going to pray for every person in Nashville by name. Every single one million people in the greater Nashville area that we're going to pray for by name, that God's Spirit would move in their lives. So if you're willing to help us and take one of those packets and pray for the next four weeks, it's a four-week commitment, just you and Jesus praying. Will you raise your hand, please? Ryan, if you'll come bring a packet. Uh, see some hands over here. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Appreciate Gloria, all you guys. Thank you, Pam. If you're willing to, to pray for one of these people Ryan's a runner. He's, he's quick. He can get to you in a hurry. <laughs> I don't know. Who would win, Ryan or Justin Carpenos in a 5K? Ryan. Ryan? <laughs> Smoke it? Yeah? Really? Okay. Different level. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Jamie, Gloria, did you get yours? Great. Excellent. Thank you. I knew we could t I'd do that. We, we got 75 packets, so 75 prayer warriors from Woodmont Baptist Church that are going to be praying the next four weeks. i got mine in my office. I'm looking forward to hitting my knees on behalf of this city. Today, we finally begin chapter two of the Gospel of John as we move, yeah, we're making progress, Kate, that's right. We're moving forward through this beautiful Gospel account of the life of Jesus Christ, and we're going to finish it in November of 2019. I hope that you are enjoying this journey that we've been on, and today's text is one of my favorite. I was telling someone this morning, it was a joy to, to dig into this text and to write this sermon because it's such a, a wonderful part of this gospel. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. Uh, it's, you know, one of my favorite things about being a pastor is I get to officiate weddings. I've, I've gotten to do a lot of weddings over the last couple of years, and it's an amazing honor and a, a privilege to help a young couple or an older couple 
navigate the, the journey and the process of Christian marriage and to, to witness the miracle of two becoming one flesh. And I love going to weddings. I love officiating weddings. And this, this exact suit and tie that I was wearing was the groomsman outfit that our mother-in-law bought us for my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's wedding. Uh, they're here today. And I, I came out of my office. There we are. Yeah. I shaved my head back then. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I can still grow beautiful locks of hair and I chose not to. And there's Blake and my father-in-law and, and John, my other brother-in-law. But that was the, the wedding, the, the view from the, the ridge of the property that they live on. Uh, just a, a beautiful place. And what a fun night that was. I, I missed my 10-year high school reunion for that event on uh, October 16th. Is that right? And, October 2nd, 16th was my sister's. Two weeks later, it was my sister's wedding, which I got to officiate. It was a wedding season, and I love wedding seasons. I love doing weddings. I love being at weddings. They're joyous occasions, and we're going to read about a joyous occasion and the joy of a wedding today. Before we begin, let me just give a disclaimer. I, I, I don't want to be guilty of what churches do a lot of times, which is elevate marriage and, and weddings over singleness. Let me say a word just briefly about singleness. Churches talk about families as the ideal, but the Bible actually mentions that singleness is preferable to married life. So let's don't ask single people, are you still single as if something's wrong with them? Because no single person has ever asked me, are you still married? No one, no one does that. Marriage is great, but it's not what completes a person. Every premarital counseling session that I help lead, we talk about how marriage isn't like the movies. It doesn't make you whole. Only Jesus does. Marriage won't exist in heaven either. The New Testament clearly teaches us that. So marriage is a temporary thing for all of us. And if you're walking that path of singleness today, let me just tell you that as a family of faith, we are here for you, we see you, we love you, we invite you into the intimacy of this family that you can be a part of at Woodmont Baptist Church. That being said, let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able to today. As I read our text from John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. 
If you had to pick one day in your life, just one day that you've lived so far as the best day of your life, what would you pick? What would you identify as the greatest day, the, the greatest 24-hour span of your life up until this point? I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it was the, the day my first kid was born. That's easy. That was the greatest day of my life. But for me, I, I don't know if I just wasn't adequately prepared for the whole childbirth experience, but it was kind of traumatic in some ways, and it was a beautiful thing, of course, after the whole labor process was over, and I got to hold Jude for the first time, and that was amazing, but uh, it, it, it still didn't compare, I don't think, to my wedding day. I think June 18th, 2005 was just a perfect day from start to finish. At, at what other occasion do you get to gather all your, your best friends and your family and your your, your bride is just so beautiful, and you have this great party all day long, all weekend long, that you get to celebrate with the people that you love the most. And our, our wedding was amazing. We had a, a five-piece band that was just did a beautiful job at the ceremony. Our college minister, Dave Hunt, who's now at Trinity Church, he officiated in a really personal and beautiful and humorous mix that I always try to imitate when I do weddings. And the, the music afterwards, the reception, we had two guys in the band for the reception that played with John Mayer and just incredible musicians. Uh, when you go to Belmont, the, the music at your wedding is always going to be really good. Uh, you can always count on that. And the, the temperature, we were worried because we had the reception in a tent in Morgan's parents' backyard. And it was in June and we, we didn't know if it would be miserable and hot and mosquitoes, but it was like right at 70 degrees, the sun was going down, and I kid you not, this is literally true, deer were coming out of the woods, like, to the party at the tent. It was like a Disney movie. I was like, this is amazing. It was perfect. It was perfect. The food was great. Just a wonderful party. Thank you to Morgan's parents for throwing a, a great party. Best day of my life. Our text for today is describing what was the best day of what was supposed to be the best day of these young couples' lives. It's the setting for Jesus' first miracle. And starting out, you, you notice in verse 2 that it says Jesus was invited to the occasion. He was invited to what was the best day of this young couple's lives. I think that tells us something already about Jesus. Jesus is not some recluse. He's, he's not some wild man living out in the desert dressed in camel hair and eating locusts and honey like John the Baptist. He's not some sage who lives on a mountain that you have to climb in order to hear his teaching or his words. He's social. Jesus is going to the party. He's bringing these six new disciples that we just read about in John chapter 1. They're, they're coming with him. And he's, he's hanging out. He's eating. He got in trouble for this. He got in trouble from the Pharisees for consorting with sinners, for going to the party. Tony Campolo, the, the preacher and author, wrote a, a great little book in, like, in the 80s called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Have you heard of that? The Kingdom of God is a party. I think too often the world looks at the church, the world looks at Christians, and they say, that's what being a Christ follower is about? being judgmental, being snobby, being boring, being a rule follower. I don't want any part of that. No thanks. It's not appealing. It's not attractive. It doesn't seem like it's a real flourishing way to live. 
But the truth is that God's plan for his people, his plan for the entire creation, is to help it flourish and thrive as he intended for it to, as he intended for you to, as he intended for me to flourish and live the best life possible. Ever since Adam and Eve brought sin into this world, it's been full of death and decay and disease. And ever since that time, Jesus has been about the work of bringing it back to what it once formerly was, a very good creation. It's sin that ruins things, not God. God's the God of life, not the God of death. Sin is what makes our jobs no fun. Sin is what makes our marriage is hard. Sin is what brings injustice and poverty and war and violence and political strife. All these things are a result of the fall of creation. Sin ruins things. Sin leads always to death and destruction. That is the inevitable end of sin. And that's just how Satan wants it. Satan is trying to destroy this whole world, including you and including me. Look at John chapter 10. We're going to get to this text sometime late summer, I think. Uh, but in it, Jesus explains why he came to earth. He tells his disciples why he put on flesh, why he moved into our neighborhood. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you believe that? Abundant life. That's what Jesus came to bring us. Life to the fullest. He came and lived among us and he died for our sins and he rose again so that we may not just survive, but so that we could thrive and flourish. I love that, that old Pixar movie, WALL-E. Have you seen WALL-E? Those of you with small children, I'm sure have. Uh, the more I, I think about it, the more I, I love this movie, WALL-E. The, the premise of the movie is that Humans have destroyed the earth through pollution, it's in the future, and there's some robots who are trying to clean it up, but meanwhile, earth has become largely uninhabitable. So humans have been shipped off onto these cruise ships out in outer space where they just ride around on little easy chairs and they have figured out a way to, to manufacture you know, big gulps and they're just drinking soda and have endless entertainment and screens everywhere. And somewhere along the way, they realize that's a miserable way to live that they're not thriving. And the captain of the, sh the cruise ship says, I want to go back to Earth and help it get right. I want to help restore Earth to, to being a good place. I want to cultivate the land. I want to go get my fingernails dirty. And the computer on the ship says, why would you do that? We have everything you need here. On, on this ship, you can survive. And the captain screams back, I don't want to survive. I want to live. I want to live. Are you ready to live the abundant life? We believe that as Christians, what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ is the way, is the truth, and is the life. We believe that he alone grants us access to the God who is the Father of life. If you want to live and not just survive, then, then come to the party. Come to the party that Jesus is inviting you Two, we believe that this is the way to abundant life. So the invitation is already here to come and see what true life is all about. See what the party really is. Look at how this theme plays out in the rest of the text. 
here. It, it says that Mary is mentioned as being there first before Jesus. And it probably implies that, that this wedding is uh, about a relative of Mary's. Mary may even be part of the catering service, which is why she's so panicked in verse 3 when she says to Jesus, they have no wine. And here's why this is such a big deal. Hebrew weddings in this culture and in this time were a huge occasion. It was the biggest event in a person's life by far, especially among the poor. Usually a wedding would start with an initial feast and then they would have the actual wedding ceremony late at night. And then after the ceremony, there would be a torchlight parade where the couple would be led all through the town. They would go the most circuitous route possible in order for everyone in the town to see them and wish them well. And they would have a, a huppa held over them, the canopy that they would hold over them as they processed all around town. And, and what they would do is the entire wedding guest, everyone who was invited to the wedding ceremony would follow them in this procession back to their house. And they didn't say, okay, good night, see ya. They stayed for a week. Imagine your wedding guests coming home with you after the wedding for a week. It was a week-long party, a celebration. Again, it was the most festive and most grand occasion of these people's life. Throughout the whole week, the bride and groom would act like the king and queen. They would wear crowns, they would sit on thrones, and they would issue edicts for all the guests to follow as royalty. It was the only time in their lives where they could live like a king or a queen. And the groom and his family had the financial responsibility of throwing this whole shindig, and if they were expected to spare no expense since this was the grandest event of their lifetime. And unless you're from another culture here, most of us Westerners can't relate to a, a, a true shame culture like the culture existed in Palestine at this time. The, the shame that would be brought on a family by running out of provisions in a feast was unconscionable. A, a lawsuit could actually be presented against the groom's family by the bride's family if adequate provisions were not made for a grand week-long party. And wine was an essential part, maybe the essential component of this wedding feast. One commentator that I read about this passage said that when they ran out of wine, it was as if the childhood dreams of the ideal wedding were about to dissolve into a nightmare. Wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy and blessing of the Lord. It was about celebration. Psalm 104 verse 15 says that God gives wine to humans to gladden the heart. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. We just sang that living water song. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wine expressed God's abundant provision and his desire to see his people enjoy the good things of life, to have his people taste something rich and pleasing and good. Wine and milk and honey, all these things mean that God wants his people to be happy. The, the rabbis had a saying in Jesus' day, Without wine, there is no joy. 
I feel like in our culture of excessive drinking, where drinking has, has become a, a real problem in our culture, I need to give this disclaimer. The Bible is not ever talking about drunkenness as a symbol of joy or happiness. The Bible is consistent in its condemnation of inebriation and the potential harm, too, that alcohol can bring on a person's life. Just come to celebrate recovery one Monday night, and, and you all know people who had their lives wrecked by alcohol and excessive alcohol, but the, the tasting of wine in Scripture, never the excess consumption of it, was a sign of God's blessing and of God's joy and provision. But for this wedding party, the joy of wine, the proof of God's love and provision had run out. It, it's deeper than just a social faux pas, isn't it? It's, it's a theological statement that John's making here about God's blessing and presence. Most of the scholars see this as John's way of showing the, the spiritual emptiness, the, the, the barrenness of God's people in the first century during Jesus' time. It had been 400 years since they've had a real prophet like Malachi who brought them a word from the Lord. The empty rituals of temple worship had become meaningless and rote and stale and oppressive. And it's not just Israel that experiences this phenomenon of the joy running out, right? I know a lot of people in my life who've lost their joy. The joy has run out. Maybe they were living the good life and then they hit rock bottom. It seems like usually when things are going really well that often the joy will run out. You know, I think that even when our lives seem to be in order, the joy of life can leave us. It happens with teenagers a lot. I've, I've known a lot of teenagers who hit this wall of emptiness. College students especially, when they get out of their parents' structure and out of their church, a lot of the times they go through this phase of emptiness and, and wondering where their joy comes from. Midlife crises are all about this, right? You know people who've gone through some crazy midlife crisis where their joy has run out. But Jesus has an answer to this problem, as we're going to see here. He says to his mom there in the next verse, or when she says they have no wine, she, she says this because she's learned that Jesus is a solution. That he's a, a never-ending resource. Uh, that he can fix whatever the problem is, even if it's a groom who's stupidly failed to provide enough wine for a wedding. And Jesus' response sounds harsh. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Man, if I called my mom woman, she's over here. She would not have taken kindly to that. Woman, it's, there's no good way to translate this into English, but it's, it's a term of polite distance. It's, it's kind of like saying ma'am. That's about as close as it gets to it. It's a polite term. He's basically telling Mary in a polite way that, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. It's a bit of a rebuke, which is hard to be the mother of Jesus, right? It was hard enough, I'm sure, being my mom, who I thought I was Jesus at times. And <laughs> but she has this rebuke, but she, she doesn't go and sit and pout. She shakes it off. Look what she says to the, the servants. She, she doesn't understand that it's not yet time for him to be revealed as the Messiah 
of Israel, as the king of all Israel, the one who's come to rescue God's people and bring this fallen world back to God. It's not time yet. His hour, when he talks about his hour, he's always referring to the hour of the cross. He's saying, if I do something like a miracle, people are going to kill me because they'll see that I'm the Messiah. And so she shakes it off. She says, don't worry about it. She knows that he can fix the situation. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. She believes that not only can Jesus fix it, but that he will fix it. Her faith is a model for us here to know that Jesus is faithful to do what he says he's going to do, to help fix what's broken and wrong, even if it's a a social faux pas. So Jesus tells the servants, fill these, these huge water pots that were used for ritual cleansing. He says, fill them up to the brim. And these pots held 20 to 30 gallons each. Ed Fulcher showed me a picture when they were in Israel. They went to Kafir, Cana. It, it's probably a few miles from the actual town of Cana in Jesus' day, but you know, within five or six, seven miles in Ga- Galilee, the northern region of, of Israel at the time. When he showed me this picture, do we have that picture, Gabe? Of the water? There it is. That's one of these water pots that they have on display in, uh, in Israel. You can go see and these, these pots were used for, for washing your hands in a ceremonial way so that you could be purified before you partook of a meal according to Old Testament law. Ritual cleansing. And think about how massive these are. Ed said you could stare down into it. 30 gallons. Now think about those five-gallon coolers that they dump on coaches at a football game, right? 30 gallons. Six of those big five-gallon coolers. That's 180 gallons of wine that would provide resources for the newlyweds for some time. They could sell that wine. It wasn't just for the feast, but it was a provision for this couple for a long time after. And it's really important, too, that these are Old Testament vessels, that they're old purification vessels, the old rules of cleansing before meals and having to constantly wash and cleanse yourself are replaced here with the gift of overflowing joy. The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote, Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. And the new wine is a symbol of amazing grace, grace that overflows and is lavished on us, that overwhelms and is outlandish in its scope and scale. Ephesians 1, 7, 8, just a few verses before the the verse that Rachel read in the baptismal, says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and thought. God didn't just say, like, here's a 20, right? He lavished his grace upon us. He poured out an overflowing abundance, an overwhelming fountain that just knocks us flat in its scope. This much wine, 180 gallons, shows us the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished on us in the perfect plan of Jesus Christ. So the immediate result here is that the groom goes from being a fool who didn't plan accordingly to being the greatest party planner ever. Jesus doesn't just turn water into wine. He turns it into the greatest wine ever made. 
If you could bottle this wine and sell it, this, this wine would have won every wine tasting contest in France forever. Jesus doesn't do mediocre miracles. The head of the catering service, the chief steward here, tastes it and he lets everybody know. He says, the groom here is incredible. Usually grooms just give people the good stuff first and then serve the cheap stuff later. But this guy, in his amazing presence of mind to plan ahead and to be so generous, has saved this really good wine now for you all to taste. Isn't he incredible? The groom's family gained tremendous pride and stature throughout the village as being the best wedding of all time. Then verse 11 tells us that this was Jesus' first miracle, the first of his signs. Throughout the next nine chapters in the, the Gospel of John through chapter 11, we're going to see six more of these signs. These are, are miracles that are intended to reveal Jesus, to be the, the actual son of the living God. The signs are the proof that he is indeed the logos that we read about in the, the prologue, that he is indeed the, the pre-existent word who was with God and who was God. The, the signs are, are, are showing us something greater than what's really just happening here. You know, signs are just an indicator to where you're supposed to go. They show us the way. The signs themselves are not the point. The God of all glory is the one that all of these signs will point to. So verse 11 says that in this first sign, Jesus manifested his glory. He made his glory known. This means that he did something more than save an unprepared groom and his family from some social embarrassment. He, he showed himself to be both the ruler of the material world who has sovereign control over water and everything else, but he's also the benevolent, generous bringer of grace and blessing. He showed us that the joy that he brings never runs out, never runs dry, and that it's vastly superior than anything this world has to offer. It's the best joy. You know, C.S. Lewis says that we sin not because our desire for pleasure is too great, but that our desire for pleasure is too small. He says that we resemble children in the slums who settle for making mud pies because they have no idea how awesome a holiday at the beach can be. We have no idea. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for us. The joy in Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the wine of this world inevitably runs out. There's, there's ec economics uh, will teach us the, the law of scarcity, that resources will run out. But Jesus' grace never ends. It overflows constantly. And he came to bring us Good news, abundant life, life to the fullest. The wine had run out for Israel at this point. The joy had left God's people. All that remained were six empty water pots. And they were supposed to be used for external cleansing, for a, a washing that was temporary and incomplete. You know, I think it's fascinating, too, that Moses' first miracle was what? He didn't turn the staff into a snake. God did that, but... 
He, he told Moses to go to the Nile at the first plague, and he turned water into what? Blood. It was a symbol of death. It was a miracle of judgment. But Jesus' first miracle, he turns water into wine. It's not a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of grace. It's a symbol of blessing. It's good news, not bad news, like Moses' miracle was. The servants in this first miracle followed Mary's advice. Do whatever he tells you. And they did. There's an aspect of faith and obedience that we should understand here. Faith and obedience precede the miracle of good news. There is no abundant life apart from faith and obedience. So the application is clear. Are you ready for the miracle of joy in your life that Jesus wants to bring you? Has your joy run out today? Do you believe that the Christian life the, the way of following Jesus as a disciple on the journey is the best way to flourish and to thrive. If so, will you listen and obey like the servants did? I love that third verse of great is thy faithfulness. It says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We are so blessed. The fount of every blessing has given us things that make this world pale in comparison. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown us that when this world fails to provide the joy that can satisfy us deep within our souls, that you give us a joy that never runs out. You provide an overflowing, overwhelming, just obscene amount of joy that never ends in Jesus Christ. These are blessings that are all ours with 10,000 beside. God, forgive us for settling for the things of this world. We pray that you would help us to see them grow dimmer and dimmer in the light of your amazing glory and grace. May we understand that in you, we have blessings not only for this life, God, which is so brief, but for eternity with you. You tell us in your word that you will not drink the fruit of the vine again until you drink it anew with us in the new creation. We look forward with hope, God. I know there's people in this room who don't feel joyful because they've had really horrible circumstances. We know that because of sin, we have to deal with the tribulation of this world, with pain, with loss, with loneliness, with anxiety, with depression, with disease. All these things that people in this church have walked through time and time again. But let us never lose the hope that you give us that abundant life can be ours in Christ both now and forever through union with yourself, the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that you would convict our hearts this morning to follow you more nearly and more dearly. We love you. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and, and you feel like the Holy Spirit's talking to you just like it was talking to May and Chloe, then I invite you to come forward now during our time of invitation and, and let me know you're ready to make a decision for Jesus Christ.
Maybe you're, you're kind of doing the Christian life on your own, but you're ready to join the team. You're ready to join the family of faith. Maybe you're single and you're ready for the, the intimate community that you can have through being a part of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. Maybe you just need to come pray at the altar. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time. Maybe you need healing and you want to pray that God would heal you. Uh, if you want to come pray with Trey or, or Brad or Jan, they're going to be up here. I'll be up here. If you want to come kneel at the altar, whatever it is you need to do during this time, we're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus and Let the Things of Earth Grow Strangely Dim in the Light of His Glory and Grace. Let's stand.